Thank you. Am I on, Bill? We have a very strange start to the message today. <clears throat> it's a short video clip of William Wallace, who was the great liberator of Scotland for a time. Eventually, the power of England and the English forces overwhelmed his forces. He was captured, convicted, and executed. This video, his last word of his life, introduces our message today. It's startling. Not the humor we just saw. Very much the opposite. Just say wishes to say a word. for freedom stir our hearts, instill vision, grow courage, raise armies, and change history. Freedom. This seems to be a nearly universal call from oppression from outside forces. Struggles for freedom are everywhere. In the Bible, we hear that freedom, here is the call of freedom. The Hebrews were freed from Egypt through Moses. The Hebrews were freed from the Midianites through, through Gideon. They were freed from the Philistines multiple times, but twice, once with Samson, later with David. They were freed from the Syrians through Elisha and Judas Maccabee. And of course, if you look outside Scripture and Israel and Judah, there are innumerable, innumerable examples of struggles of weaker states and territories for political freedom, from the military control and tyranny of others. As we just saw, Scotland's freedom was short-lived by William Wallace. United States, free from the English, through George Washington, the Second Continental Congress. Europe and much of Asia, freed from the Axis powers by the Allied forces after a long, hard war. 
And there are obviously ongoing struggles. We hear in what's going on in Ukraine since 2022. Constant battle to remain free and open up freedom to their whole country. There are continual struggles for freedom, for political freedom, let alone calls for economic freedom, social freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, social, of information. And then there's a host of freedoms from. We want to be freedom free from discrimination, from unreasonable search and seizure, from unlawful detention, and the list goes on and on and on. So it's not surprising in Galatians 5 to hear Paul call for freedom. Freedom, in this case, spiritual freedom. He continues to express his concern that the Galatians are giving up for their freedom in Christ for the slavery of righteousness through works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as you have called us to freedom. Thank you for the words that Lenny read, the truths that Lenny read. Father, today, open our hearts to the freedom you're calling us to. Empower us to the to use the freedom for what you designed it to be used for. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. As we read last week, Galatians 5.1 starts out, the whole chapter, for freedom Christ has set us free. Now you may not remember the second part of that verse, but if I were... <clears throat> a playwright or something like that. I'd have Mel Gibson doing this in, in front of the Scottish army just after he had the success at Fourth River in destroying the English and overwhelming odds that they had. I think he would say something like this. This is, this is Paul's words, not William Wallace's. But it is, can you hear him say this? Stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. After the, great, after the great victory he had, why would anyone think about submitting again to slavery? But ironically, there were many Scottish leaders that were saying, we've got to. This will not last. The English are too strong. They'll, they'll take it. They'll, they'll, it'll be worse. And they didn't believe they had the power to continue in freedom. But hallelujah, spiritually, we have the power to continue to win our freedom through Christ and through his spirit. Paul, this is actually John, says, God's power is always greater than evil. And he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. But in the verse chapter one, or verse one, it says, Paul used the term, he has set us free. That's a past tense. Well, what, did, what were they set free from? Well, the Galatians were not free from Roman rule. The Romans were at a zenith about this time of the life. There was nobody out there that was threatening or could possibly have a challenge to the Romans. So it wasn't talking about political freedom. There was no Moses or Gideon or David that's going to come out of the woodwork. At least it wasn't apparent. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, we read that before the Galatians had ever known real, the real God, they were enslaved to false gods. 
or in verse 4, chapter 3, chapter 4, verse 3, he said, they were enslaved to the elementary spirits of the world. They were in a state of complete paganism. They were essentially a slave to demonic powers and forces. Paul is saying that the Galatians, indeed all of us, before God calls us, are without hope. He's emphasizing that it's God's work before God had made himself known to them, is the way he describes it. That's God's work in calling them. God freed the Galatians from the power and slavery of pagan worship and the sure results of that. He brought them in the truth of life, the, the truth of his word and the life in Christ, his redemption, redemptive word and eternal life. That's clearly cause for great rejoicing. But now, in Galatians, kind of the whole book, Paul's concerned that they're moving again toward being enslaved, this time to rituals, laws of the Jews, customs, and circumcision. He's been hammering on this issue since verse 6 in chapter 1. Here we are in chapter 5. In chapter 1, verse 6, Darren said, he was astonished that they could do this. He was astonished that they were thinking again of going to slavery, being caught up with rules and laws and customs, which the Judaizing Christians were telling them they had to do. The Judaizers were saying, Christ alone is not sufficient. You need to believe in Christ, but you've got to put your act together. You've got to follow the, the, the laws, the, the, the customs. You've got to follow circumcision. And then you'll be worthy of Christ's full salvation. But those who trust in their works in Christ are committed to following the whole law. Like we heard in James, if you miss one part of the law, you're still caught in slavery. Luther agrees with this. We've got to hope we slide on this one. There is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There are no other alternatives to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. Luther's saying, as he was really what the Reformation was about, is that if you add anything to the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, that is being counted, his righteousness being counted as our righteousness, then you are into works righteousness. That's the message of, of J, uh, Galatians to a large part. And he focuses this in the first part of Galatians 5. We heard last week with Darren. He's again telling him it's absurd to try to follow the whole for two reasons. First, we can't do it. And secondly, it pulls us in the quicksand of works righteousness. You know, we're never going to be good enough. It's kind of like Sisyphus. You remember that story of the Greek that keeps pushed the Greek, he's pushed the big rock up the top of the line, and he slips and falls, and he goes back down, and he does it again. He's doomed to do this forever in the Greek mythology. That's ourselves in works righteousness. We keep pushing the rock, and it keeps falling back on us. We do it over and over and fail again and again and again. Or the other example, which we had in spades two weeks, way three weeks ago, is the picture of the, the full backpack, the 120-pound backpack that Ryan's trying to move, and he finally got it off. And then he thought, well, I should put it back on again because I really can't. It must be something more than to salvation than this. 
The Galatians predicament was that after God had removed the heavy weight, the backpack loaded with paganism and sin and pride, they were choosing to put it back on again by relying on their good works. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Okay, let's fast forward from, from uh, Galatians 5.1 to Galatians 5.13. I want you to be careful to read this and notice the verb tense and the proposition. Preposition. <clears throat> you were called to freedom. All right. Verb tense. You were called. It's history. Something's happened. And what are you called toward? You're called to freedom. We were called by the powerful grace of God, not something out of our wisdom or work or, or cleverness. But we were called by the grace of God out of the bondage of sin, Satan, and evil. What to? The freedom of the gospel. The vision God has for us is freedom. It is freedom. That's the vision he's given to us. A vision of freedom. What's the freedom? He doesn't expect us to be slaves to sin living in failure and despair. We've been freed from that. Or as Jesus himself says, truly, truly, I say to you, to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. When God sets us free from, uh, from sin's power, we're truly free. We don't need to continue in sin. We don't need to practice sin anymore. Now, surely, we all know we do fail. But as we seek God, he sends his spirit, and he calls us to repentance. He calls us to confess our sins in him. It's like the woman caught in adultery in John 8. All the other accusers finally leave, and Jesus says, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. She's been freed of that sin. She's been forgiven of that sin. And God wants to put her back in action. What has God called you to do? Sin detracts you from what God's called you to do. When you are free, we're able and we have the desire to do that. This process is really called sanctification. It's becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And that's the world God has put us all who know him into. In 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, sanctification is God's will for us. And we have his Holy Spirit enabling us to increasingly conform to the image of Christ. And now note also, our calling has a purpose. Continuing there, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Paul's saying there's a freedom to this is a freedom to do something, not a freedom from discrimination. It's a freedom to. <clears throat> when people today define freedom, it's often a declaration of their individual autonomy. You have that in the slide. An announcement 
that they're not bound by legal, religious, or moral constraints. People's definition of freedom is often a declaration of their individual autonomy. When people think about their individual freedoms, they often reject constraints of any kind because they think these are personal decisions. And if my personal decision doesn't interfere with your life and doesn't harm you, I should be able to do whatever I wish. It's kind of a libertarian view. They, these folks argue that their decisions can be made without interference from others, for they see themselves as autonomous, free agents. And they want to be free, absolutely free to do whatever they want to do. They want to use their money as they want to use their money. They want to use their, do whatever they want to do with their bodies. As long as they claim they're not hurting someone else, they should be able to free to do that. <clears throat> be it drugs or alcohol or illicit sex or even abortion. Many demand freedom from external controls and laws and rules. That's what really, in my perspective, that's what Ohio Amendments 1 and 2 were like. That's what they were about. And they passed. That's the world we live in. People are demanding this freedom. But that is not God's plan for us. 1 Corinthians 6, I think we got this as well. <clears throat> it's a rather lengthy scripture here. Do you not know that the unrighteousness, unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or adulterers, idolaters or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. We were washed. We were, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now note this. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We have freedom in Christ if we're his children. But Paul's emphasizing we are not autonomous agents. First, God created each one of us and has a right because of that. And secondly, those of us who are redeemed, he paid through the blood of Christ to buy us back. We are not our own. We are bought with a price. And what's the answer? So glorify God in your body. And when doing so, when we have freedom to serve through love, to serve one another, we are glorifying God. I remember there's Romans around here somewhere. I just saw him. Oh, Romans. Oh, there he is, yes. Two weeks or maybe three weeks ago now, he had a word. And he said, you know, I don't want to have to do things. I want to want to do things. You know, it's not... We don't want to have a duty. That The law creates duty. The Spirit gives us desire. I think that's the real difference. We want to have a growing desire to use our freedom and our love to serve others. That's what Paul's calling us to. That's the second half of the verse. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And those who try to follow the law and those who look to the works of the flesh or human activity as their salvation, both those groups are still enslaved because they don't know what freedom is yet. They don't have the contentment that freedom provides. They're out there to earn it or to get it or to find it. They've not received the gift of salvation and freedom by faith. 
that they're working on. Quote from John Piper, the works of the flesh are motivated by the desire to fill our emptiness. The meaning of the flesh in the book of Galatians is not just the physical part of man, but man's ego, which feels a deep emptiness and uses what the means within his own power to fulfill that emptiness. If it's religious, it may use the law. If it's irreligious, it may use booze. But one thing is sure, the flesh is not free. It's enslaved to one futile desire after another in its effort to fill an emptiness which only Christ can fill. Paul's arguing that Christ has set his children free and has provided us eternal salvation. We hear Jesus say again, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. Christ has freed us from the consequences of sin. He's freed us from the guilt of our sin. It's freedom. He's freed us from the fear of imperfection. He's freed us from eternal death. But he's done more than that. He's filled our emptiness and purposelessness. He's given us a fulfilling purpose in life. So glorify God. The Galatians being urged not to use their freedom as an opportunity to indulge in their own desires, but to lovingly serve one another. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, we are his workmanship created for good works, good works of serving one another in love. Here we see a, a do and a don't. Don't seek to please ourselves and do through love serve one another. Tim Keller says, the call to believe in Jesus is to be justified before God. I'm sorry, is a call to freedom. But the nature of this freedom is not a life free from any moral ethical restraints in which one indulges any and every opportunity to ask, act on one's sinful desires and inclinations. Rather, freedom in Christ enables believers to actively serve one another in love. Those who have been freed by Jesus, the suffering servant, are empowered to show the same kind of sacrificial love. You know, Jesus is our supreme example through the power of the Spirit, as we'll hear more about next week. We can overcome our sinful inclinations to focus on our own desires and our own agenda and serve others. Now, Keller goes on, rejecting the Mosaic law as the governing norm for the Christian life does not leave the believer without moral restraints because the Spirit empowers the kind of heart-level love for a neighbor that the law could never produce. You know, in short, I think the Spirit produces a desire to serve. The law produces a duty to serve. Keller's saying the law and a duty to serve just is different than a desire to serve, a wish to serve. I'm not doing it because I have to, because I want to, to use Roman's term. Now we read, or Darren read this morning, the most important command is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. And the seconds like it, you shall love your neighbors yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. I just want to look at those words. Strong concordance, I'm not a Greek scholar, so I just use something easier. Provide several translations for the word agape love that, that uh, Paul's using here. You could say it according to uh, Strong's Concordance. You could say, love your neighbor could be translated as, wish your neighbor well. Or, take pleasure in your neighbor. Or, long for your neighbor. Or, esteem your neighbor. There's other ways to describe that. But I've noticed, think about it, all these translations kind of assume you know your neighbor. I mean, it just bluntly does. It assumes you can talk to your neighbor with some degree of uh, 
of ease and some degree of belief and comfort, uh, there's a healthy relationship assumed in this. It's a prerequisite for this kind of relationship is some kind of friendship and communication. Now, sometimes loving your neighbor is not hard. Our community group, I find it pretty easy to love the people in our community group. They're just kind people who love us, my wife and I, and we just love to serve them. It's not, it's not, a, not a hard job. Might be some work in there, but it's, we do it for, because we love to. But it's a lot harder if your neighbor is not so much like you. A lot of Tim Keller here. Loving your neighbor is easiest when there's very little difference, when there are no contentious issues between you, like when your lifestyle matches yours, when they believe like you do, when they vote like you do, shop like you do, where you do, have the same economic status you do, send your ch- their children to the same schools you do. The smaller the gap between you, the easier the bridge is to build. Makes sense. The biggest need for bridge building, however, is when the gap is the biggest or you don't understand the other person, or when you feel the other person might be your opponent, or even one who hates you, that the degree of difficulty in loving your neighbor doesn't excuse us from loving that neighbor. The difficulty in loving your neighbor doesn't excuse us from loving your neighbor. But how can we possibly bridge the gap with a neighbor we don't really have much to with in common? I suggest the first thing we knew is we need to listen. I truly believe that listening to another earns us the right to speak to another and be heard by them. That's both your neighbors, your fellow workers, your acquaintances. You know, we can ask open-ended questions. We can try to repeat what they've told us to make sure we understand them before we decide to give our opinion. You know, seek to understand before you seek to talk. Ah. It's that, that doing that is both civil and polite. And I think it's a necessary step to begin to penetrate those folks we don't know too well to get a conversation going. But, you know, it's my, I, there's lots of techniques, but they're never sufficient. Only with the Spirit's empowering do we have really have the opportunity to have hope that we can really impact our neighbors this way. When the bridges are really big, we need the Spirit's help. We always need the Spirit's help. But secondly, let's recognize that to lovingly serve another is to make yourself vulnerable. And bluntly, it's kind of dangerous. C.S. Lewis has this fairly familiar quotation. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one. Wrap it carefully around your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket of your selfishness. But in, but that, in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. When we love and serve with love, We can be rejected. Our service can be rejected. Our gift can be returned. Often our kindness will go unnoticed. Every parent knows that. And even possibly ignored purposely. 
When that happens, we tend to think, well, I wasted my time and my treasure and my talent because it didn't work. Our kindness can be misunderstood. It can even be thought to be manipulative when it wasn't. And the greater the love and the more significant our investment, the greater the pain we may experience. You see, there's risk in loving and reaching out. And it takes courage, bluntly, to do so. I want to preface this personal example because I, like, I don't like to give personal examples that might make me look better than I am. Uh, and almost anything good probably fits that. Uh, I'm not some untarnished hero. My wife's not an untarnished hero or heroine. Uh, we seem like the rest of you. We're not in any pedestal, but I think we did something right this week. I'd like to share that with you. Um, Sue's mom, as many of you know, has been suffering from dementia. She's been here a few times. She can no longer come. She can't really walk unless someone's holding the walker with her and helping her. Dementia is getting worse. Um, She has the physical control of a very young child, and so there's lots of work. And she's been in the facility of rehab for about two months, and, you know, that that was a relief for us. Um, Well, she had graduated. They couldn't do any more, basically, is what they're saying. So we had a choice of with her brothers deciding she wants to be institutionalized, or do we take her home to her house and our house and their houses and share this all? Well, we had seen her at this rehab center, and we realized they're not all the same, and there's probably better ones than we had her in. But we'd get there, and she'd have her hair uncombed. She'd be sitting in her chair watching people go by or kind of dozing. Uh, They didn't dress her in any way, shape, or form that really made her look good. And she just seemed very sad. And so we thought, what are we going to do here? Be light easier, candidly, to put her in a home. But we felt that to lovingly serve Sue's mom would be to bring her home. We did. And praise God, when she got to her home, we were there with her four days, I guess, this week. Um, she, she actually laughed a couple times. She, gave, she mentioned Sue's name the first time she had heard that in weeks. Uh, and she said the Lord's Prayer with us at bedtime. She said a sentence prayer we have for grace, and she had light in her eyes again. That's more than a home can provide, I think. And yes, Sue and I know it's going to be difficult for us. We can't even take her to church anymore, so we're going to be, when we've got her for our month or what, two weeks at a crack, we're going to be pretty much constrained to be home. Um, but we have no expectations. She's going to be thanking us or, you know, something like that. She just doesn't have that capability. But we remember that Jesus stepped out of heaven, much more glorious. He made himself vulnerable for us and our salvation. He chose death and the Father's rejection so that we might receive true life and freedom. I think God is calling all of us to serve one another in love even when the price is high. You know, Paul Tripp's trip suggests why we find it so difficult to love our neighbors as ourselves. I think it's kind of a fundamental truth. Could it be that we are so busy loving ourselves and making sure that others love us in the way we want to be loved that we have little time and energy left that we should love them as we should? Could it be that we are so busy working to co-opt the other in the service of our wants, needs, and feelings 
that we're too distracted to notice all the opportunities to love that every day gives us? Rhetorical questions, and obviously, yes, it's true. We're naturally more concerned about ourselves than our neighbor. Why? I think it's because we don't have the full understanding and a daily practice of what it is to take on Jesus' yoke, to learn from him who is humble, who is gentle and lowly in heart, and find rest in our souls. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light. When we rest in him, we find peace. When we don't rest in him, we don't understand our identity in Christ well enough, and therefore we are concerned about what others think. Next sermon's passage begins with great words. Walk by the Spirit. Darren will be here. And it'll be great because that's where the power comes. Come back. You know, today's our passage that Lenny read. I can't think of much more of a downer than this. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. Then they kind of strike you as, by the way, it's right after lovingly serve one another. What a contrast. I mean, if I were writing this, I would have put at least some sort of transition in there other than but. Um, I mean, it just, it just shocks you if you're really reading. What good grief, where did this come from? We're just loving each other. Now we're biting each other. You know, I think it's Paul's point. If we're not lovingly serving one another, we need to be watch out, watching out because we might be guilty of biting or a tendency to devour one another. Active love and service to one another seem to be the suggested antidote for destroying each other. You know, we are living, I've lived along with most of you, I guess, but today it's in your face society. We kind of live in a rampant incivility world. Uh, we disagree on all sorts of things. And there seems to be very few middle positions that you can accept. We have our own tribes. I, we are all in a tribe. We're a tribe here. Uh, and we have a hard time listening to others from other tribes. We're quick to attribute, attribute, I'm sorry, evil motives to other tribes. We just, they, they must have, something's wrong there in that group. We're quick to give them, bad, assume bad motives, and we Hard to listen to them. You know, choices in candidates, issues like immigration, gun control, educational options, vaccinations, women's rights, masking, and even issues in differing biblical understandings of baptisms or eternal punishment for the ungodly and the gifts of the Spirit are so easy to divide us. A quote from Jared Kennedy. Sadly, these differences lead to division. And they often expose our pride and self-righteousness. For my own part, I've discovered the hardest time to avoid pride and smug feelings is when I have the high moral ground. It might begin with genuine concern for a friend whose decisions may cause them and or others harm. But then if he doesn't respond to what I'm saying in the way that I hope or expect, I feel hurt. The anger starts to arise in my chest. I'm tempted to type a four-page, four-paragraph Facebook Post in my head. Now, I don't have a Facebook account. That is, I don't have any temptations right. Uh, Facebook rebuttals. But I am very susceptible to pride and feelings of superiority when I too think I have the high ground. Or when I am pretty confident that I know more than my brother or sister about this. I've done some study, I've done some reading. 
And therefore, I have a better opinion. I'm just sharing the truth in my not-so-humble opinion. But we are skating on sin. It's sin within me speaking, not the spirit within me loving my neighbor as myself. You see, self-righteous people like I am often can think our moral behavior and religious performance makes us better than others, Christians, and certainly better than those pagans outside. Like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, we see our faithful works for God in his kingdom, for God to to love us more, to appreciate us more, to be thankful for us a little more. And when he does, God doesn't respond that way, and he doesn't. We pout and feel justified in doing so. In our pettiness, we are likely to bite and hurt someone else. We forget that the one who was unfairly treated and who was crucified for our sins. In Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth when he was accused. He who knew no sin was falsely accused, condemned, and killed. He who was infinitely wiser than all his accusers, he could have called down legions of angels and cleared the place. But he accepted the shame. He bore our sins. He died on our behalf because he knew there was no other way for rebellious, argumentative sinners like us to be saved. You know, it's easy for self-righteous people like I am many too many times to think our moral behavior and religious performance makes us special, makes God owe us something, or certainly will love us more and give us more. But our behaviors, God's redeemed children, never makes God love us more. How could he who gave his son and watched his son, and turned from his son as he died. Isn't that the biggest expression of love he could ever give us? He's not going to love us more because of what we do. But thankfully, he doesn't love us less when we fail. He's a good dad who loves his kids when they're good or when they're bad. Yes, he's disappointed when we do wrong. He wants us to have full freedom, and we're rejecting it. But he loves us the same. He loves us because we're his kids. Now, I think this is important. Knowing and fully believing that we are his beloved children gives us confidence to hear hurtful, maddening words from a careless friend or neighbor without our identity in Christ being threatened. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. With the Spirit's power, we can be at peace when others attack us. We can listen and try to understand when others are shouting at us. We can turn the other cheek because we trust God as our protector. We can walk the extra mile because the Spirit gives us the strength. We can choose not to retaliate, but to love and even lovingly serve those who would hurt us because we have an anchor. We have a sure foundation. We have hope. Lovingly serving, I think, is a powerful 
response to those who wish to fight and devour. It demonstrates we have a confidence, a confidence hope that's beyond us. It's showing people Jesus when we do. And of course, that was Jesus' response. First Peter, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might, be, you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to the one who does judge justly. We can and need to entrust ourselves to God. Jesus is the model. When reviled, threatened, beaten, and killed, he entrusted himself to his father. He knew that God is just and judges justly. We need to entrust ourselves to God, believing God will ultimately execute justice. That's our calling. It's a demonstration of the faith we have in a just and faithful God. What a high calling it is. But remember this. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will do it. We are not expected to do God's will in our own power. We are not autonomous. We are creatures who are dependent on God's power to recognize his work in our lives, to be grateful for his work in our lives, and to praise him for what he's doing. I'd like to close this word with a rather lengthy prayer by Scotty Smith, the contributor to the Gospel Coalition. It seemed to kind of summarize this, so join me in this prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, we're exceedingly grateful that the gospel is more like an irresistible subpoena than a polite invitation. Our need is so great, and we are so stubborn. We cannot respond to the gospel apart from the Spirit's strong summons. Indeed, the gospel is a life-giving subpoena, the means by which you call us from death to life, from slavery to freedom. We were just as dead and bound in graves' clothes as Lazarus was when you spoke the words, come forth, and you raised us from spiritual death. We praise you today for the effectually sovereign, death-defeating, liberty-giving power of the gospel. Those you set free are free indeed, and the freedom to which you call us is is to define the rest of our days and permeate each area of our lives. This is nowhere more necessary than in our world of relationships. You have called us to love one another as you love us, Jesus, the confirming mark of true discipleship. That is in Galatia, so in our churches, our marriages, our friendships, we often fail miserably. At times, our graceless attitudes and actions result in Christian cannibalism, abiding and devouring of one another. When we do so, we sabotage your glory. We veil your beauty. We lie about who you are and what it means to be in relationship with you. We give non-believers the opportunity to blaspheme your name and mock your church. Cut us to the heart with the ugliness we offer the watching world. Grant us godly grief and gospel repentance for acting like relational piranhas, 
nibbling at one another's brokenness and inconsistencies more than we feast on your grace and love. Forgive us for holding on to unforgiveness just to gain an advantage in a relationship or to minimize our sin. Forgive our reverse, rehearsing the sins of others more than we remember the way you've forgiven us. Forgive us for being petty rather than patient, critical rather than compassionate, mean rather than merciful. Help us know that overlooking the failures of others wouldn't be cowardly or codependent, but courageous. Help us learn how to use conflict redemptively rather than destructively. I just want to add these my words. Father God, I pray that I and all in the hearing of this prayer might be empowered by your spirit to use the freedom and power that the gospel of Christ has bestowed upon us, not as an opportunity to focus on our own desires and our own selves, but to freely and lovingly serve one another and in doing so glorify you, our most blessed Lord and Savior. Surprised to sing. <laughs>